So our second Bible reading is John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. let's bow our heads to pray for God's help in understanding and applying those words. Father in heaven, we learn from the very first chapter of the Bible that when the world was formless and chaotic, you brought order to it by your word. Please this morning, would you similarly bring order to our often formless lives and our often chaotic hearts through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine a group of low-income high school juniors visiting a prestigious college. A team of undergraduates who are currently at that college have been given the job of showing these high school juniors around. But instead of taking them to the college's top-rated cafeteria, the undergraduates give the visiting high schoolers instant noodles. Instead of showing them the college's world-renowned library, the undergraduates sit around looking at their phones and seem to expect the high schoolers to do the same. Instead of taking them to a performance at the college theatre or a football game at the college stadium, the undergraduates take their guests to a nearby shopping mall. By the end of their visit, those high school juniors have been in the company of college students, but they haven't seen or experienced what that college really offers. Their hosts haven't made use of the good things available to them. In that scenario, we wouldn't expect the high schoolers to apply to that college. Why would they apply after receiving such an unappealing, unattractive vision of college life from the people who had the job 
of showing them what college life is like. As Jesus comes to the end of his farewell message to the disciples, he's about to leave the world and he knows that after he's left, the world will be watching his followers. He knows the world will make up its mind about him and the life he offers by looking at his followers and seeing what they do, how they live. It's not unlike college students giving high school juniors a college tour. There's a danger that if Jesus' followers don't take hold of the good things that they have through him, they'll present a vision of Christianity that isn't as attractive and compelling as it really ought to be. Jesus knows that he is providing good things to his followers. And as he reaches the end of his farewell message, he highlights four good things. He wants his followers to take hold of them, not only for their sake, but for the sake of a watching world. In verse 21, he says, so that the world may believe. In verse 23, he says, so that the world may know. Jesus wants his people to showcase Christianity as it really is. What's extraordinary about the good things Jesus speaks of in this Bible passage is that each of them has the same quality that it has within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus speaks about unity, about glory, about love, about knowledge. And in each case, he says that his followers can have something of the same experience as the three persons of the Trinity. It's like getting to eat the highest grade maple syrup that the trustees of the Canadian Maple Syrup Association get to eat. It's like playing a sport with professional grade equipment, the equipment used by the pros for that sport. Jesus' followers have Trinity grade unity, glory, knowledge and love available to us. If we take hold of these things, we'll experience what the persons of the Trinity experience. And that will be very hard for a watching world to ignore. The plan for the rest of the sermon is to look at each of those four good things in turn, beginning with Trinity-grade unity. Trinity-grade unity. In verse 20, Jesus makes it clear that he is praying for regular believers, people like you and me. He says, I do not ask for these only, meaning the 11 disciples with him at that time. But also, he says, for those who will believe in me through their word. Well, that's you and me, isn't it? That's everyone throughout the world who has believed the message about Jesus proclaimed by those first disciples. Jesus is praying for Jane Doe and John Doe Christians. And his prayer shows us the kind of unity that we can have with one another. In verse 22, he prays that they may be one 
even as we are one, meaning himself and God the Father, that they may be one even as we are one. So when we talk about Christian unity, we're not, we're not talking about being basically on the same page as our fellow Christians. We are talking about being as closely united with our fellow Christians as Jesus is with the Father. To help us wrap our brains around this, think back to John chapter 15, where Jesus pictures himself as a vine with his followers as the branches producing fruit. That's an image of organic unity. A vine's trunk and its branches are all joined together. They all form one plant. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul pictures the church as a body with Jesus as the head and Jesus' followers as the body parts. The Apostle Peter pictures the church as a growing temple made up of what he calls living stones with Jesus as the cornerstone. Those are all pictures of organic unity, living oneness, shared life. And that is what lifts Christian unity up to the highest level. It's a unity that comes from shared life. This life that we have in common is given to us by the Spirit. Earlier in his farewell message, Jesus tells his disciples that the Father will give them another helper to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. He says the Spirit will be in you. And he goes on to say, in that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. That explains how Christian unity can be Trinity grade unity. It's because real Christians have one of the persons of the Trinity living within us, the Holy Spirit. Through the Spirit, we're united to the Son and to the Father. Because the three persons of the Trinity aren't walled off from one another, they indwell one another. The three persons of the Trinity indwell one another, they're not walled off from one another. Since we have the Holy Spirit living within us, one of the persons of the Trinity, we are united to the Son and to the Father. And through the Spirit, real believers are united to one another because the same Spirit who lives in me is living in you. Jesus tells the 11 disciples that they will receive the Spirit because he knows they've put their trust in him. And that's how we came to receive the Spirit. He is given to those who believe in Jesus. Faith in Jesus isn't just being in favor of him. It means actively trusting in him in your heart. It means trusting that through his death and resurrection, you have personally received forgiveness of sins and eternal life. If you have that faith in Jesus, then you have the Holy Spirit. And since the Spirit is also dwelling in other true believers, you're united to them. Real Christians are united to one another by the same living being who exists in unity with the Father and the Son. We have Trinity-level unity. 
Well, at the end of the sermon, we'll think more about what it looks like to live out that unity under the world's watchful eyes. But unity isn't the only Trinity-grade good thing in this passage. In verse 22, Jesus speaks of glory. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them. Through faith in Jesus, we receive his Trinity-grade glory. We need to tread carefully here because Jesus' followers don't receive his glory in every possible sense. Far from it. But looking at those words in verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, there must be some way in which we possess Jesus' glory. So in what sense do we have that glory? Well, one of the themes of John's gospel is revelation. Jesus reveals the glory of God. When the Son of God came into our world to live among us as a human being, he displayed God's glory, more of God's glory than had ever been displayed before. Jesus' disciples witnessed that glory, and through their message, Jesus' glory has been revealed to others, century after century and throughout the whole world. Human beings are drawn to glorious things, precious jewels, beautiful artwork, stunning outdoor scenery, music, sports. We're drawn to glory. We want to be a part of it. We want to have it. But nothing compares to the glory of God displayed in Jesus Christ. He gave sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. He put paralyzed people back on their feet. He multiplied five small loaves and two small fish to feed thousands of people. He walked on the surface of a stormy lake. He spoke about eternal life and explained how to get it. And most gloriously of all, he went to his death on the cross, suffering God's punishment for sin in the place of others, so that anyone who trusts in him would never have to suffer that punishment. All of that glory is revealed to those who hear and believe. As we hear and believe the message about Jesus, we receive that glorious revelation. It shines in our hearts and minds. And that thrilling glory is the glory of God himself. It's Trinity-grade glory because the Son reveals the Father. If someone asked you, what is glorious in your life right now? And you had to answer really quickly, would you think of the glory of Jesus Christ that has been revealed to you? Or, or would your brain more quickly Think of something else. What's glorious in your life right now? Could it be time for you to give more of your attention to the glory of Jesus Christ? The word of God will lead you to his glory. Remember verse 20. Those who will believe in me through their word. 
The message of those first disciples has been preserved for us in the New Testament, and the New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So the whole word of God, both old and new, leads us to the glory of Jesus. As we read and meditate on the word, Jesus' glory will fill our hearts afresh. Let's press on to the third good thing in this passage. The third thing that we already have through faith. Trinity-grade knowledge, or it might be better to say Trinity-grade knowing. Please look down to verse 25. In this verse, Jesus still has regular believers in view. Ever since verse 20, he's been praying for those who will believe in me through their message. So when Jesus talks about these in verse 25, he has regular Christian believers in mind. Here's what he says. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. It's a verse about knowing the Father. We know someone when we have a personal relationship with them. That's the kind of knowing Jesus is talking about in verse 25. He says to the Father, I know you. They're in the middle of the verse because he has an eternal personal relationship with the Father. I know you, he says. But here's the thing, the rest of verse 25 doesn't say quite what we expect it to say. We expect Jesus to pray, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know you. That's what we'd expect because it is certainly true that regular believers know the Father. Jesus himself says as much in verse 3 of this very Bible chapter, John 17. But in verse 25, instead of saying, and these know you, which he could have said, Jesus says, and these know that you have sent me. It's Jesus' way of making the point that in order to know the Father, you need to believe the Father has sent Jesus. Earlier in his farewell message, Jesus says something similar. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Here in verse 25, Jesus is underlining that point. To know the Father, you need to know and believe that he has sent Jesus. That may sound frustratingly narrow to you. Why does God the Father limit relationship with himself to those who know he sent Jesus? We don't have time to answer that question at length. But here are three quick answers to the question, why does God the Father limit relationship with himself to those who know he sent Jesus? First, God is God. And he does as he pleases. And we should have the humility to let God be God. The second answer is that what is really shocking when it comes to knowing God is that any human being can have a personal relationship with him. Think of his purity and goodness. Think of your own impurity and wrongdoing. It is amazing that he wants to know any of us. But he does. And he sent his son so that we could know him, so that we could gain access to him 
thanks to the forgiveness paid for by Jesus on the cross. The third answer to the question, why does God the Father limit relationship with himself to those who know he sent Jesus, is that someone can only ask that question after hearing Jesus' claims about himself. So those who ask that question have all they need to get to know God through Jesus. They are among those who have heard Jesus' claims about himself. That's the important thing to focus on if you're someone here today who's not yet following Jesus. Put your trust in him so that you can know the Father through him. Do that first. There will be plenty of time for speculative theological questions afterwards. Those who know God have access to him. If you have a personal relationship with the Father through Jesus, if you know him, you can call out to him at any time. You can call to the living God who made the heavens and the earth. When the rug is pulled out from beneath your feet by a disturbing medical diagnosis or a problematic situation at work or a dating disappointment, those who know God can call out to him, the creator. We have access to him at all times through Jesus and he will listen to us like a father listening to his child. The last of the four Trinity grade good things in this passage is love. In verse 23, Jesus prays for his followers to become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Instead of the father having one love for the son and a different lower grade love for believers, it's the same love so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Some English Bible translations say, just as you loved me. I wouldn't dare to say that God the Father's love for me is the same as his love for Jesus if it wasn't the plain meaning of those words in verse 23. God's love for believers may not be the same in every sense, in every way, as his love for God the Son, but it must be the same in some sense because of what Jesus says. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as, just as, you loved me. In the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus tells the story of a son who claims his inheritance before his father has died and then leaves his father's household, heads off to a faraway town, squanders all of that inheritance and then in desperation decides to return to his father. When his father catches sight of his son, he runs toward him and throws his arms around him. It is a parable about God's eagerness to receive sinful human beings into restored relationship with himself. When we come home to God, his arms are open wide to receive us into his loving embrace. 
And that's where you still are now, if you're someone who has come home to God through Jesus. You are still in God's loving embrace now, today. What Jesus says in verse 23 of our passage intensifies the message of the parable of the prodigal son. Verse 23 teaches us about the nature of that loving, fatherly embrace that God holds us in. It is the same kind of loving embrace as his embrace with God the Son. The same kind of love as the love between God the Father and God the Son. Last month, it was revealed that a statue bought by a couple for their garden in Britain for £5,200, which is about $7,500. Last month, it was revealed that statue was one of the last marble sculptures completed by the Italian artist Antonio Canova before his death in 18. 22 and that statue bought for 5200 pounds is now valued for sale between 5 million and 8 million pounds about 10 million dollars the article i read about that uh, statue says uh, its sellers have not been named but are said to be a british couple who bought it to decorate their garden I'm sure that couple were aware that they had a beautiful, valuable statue on their hands. They bought it for their own garden. They paid £5,200 for it. But they didn't realise until it was properly identified just how astoundingly valuable that statue was. In a similar way, we instinctively know as Christians, that the unity, glory, knowledge, and love that we have through Jesus are valuable, beautiful things. But Jesus' teaching in this Bible passage shows just how astoundingly valuable they are when we see that they are Trinity-grade, Trinity-grade unity, glory, knowledge, and love we get a right estimation of the astounding value of those good things. Out of those four good things, we're going to focus on unity as we close, because unity is the one that Jesus picks out as especially important for the watching world. That they may all be one, verse 21, end of verse 21, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. It's unity that leads to that reaction from the world. And then in verse 23, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me. It's unity that Jesus picks out. So here are some closing observations on unity. The first is that unity assumes community. The watching world can't see that Christians are united if Christians are scattered in 
individual isolation. They won't be able to see it. They won't be able to see that unity. It assumes community. One reason why we mustn't give up meeting together is because we need to showcase our unity. And we do that through the local church. That is how Christians gather in community, through the local church. But not every church that claims to be a Christian church is a true, real Christian church. That is why we need to go back to verse 20. I do not ask for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Our unity must be based on the message about Jesus. So if I encounter a Christian or a church that claims to be a Christian church, that is not faithful to the disciples' message about Jesus preserved for us in the New Testament, if their doctrines, the things they believe, just don't match up with what the New Testament teaches, then I have no obligation to be united with them. They may claim to be Christian, but if they're not proclaiming the disciples' message about Jesus found in the New Testament, then I'm not un under obligation to be united to them. Unity is based on the word. Next observation about unity, Jesus is praying for it, which shows that it's not something we can get through our own effort, through straining ourselves to make sure that we stay united and stay together. We need God's help. We need to do as Jesus exemplifies. We need to pray to God the Father for unity, to sustain the unity that we have, praise God, here at Good Shepherd. But once we've got those things in place, a prayerful community gathered around Jesus through the proclamation of his word, well, then it falls to each one of us to play our part by the power of God, with God's help. Don't be that guy. Don't be that woman who storms off in an angry huff or who quietly retreats so that other people need to go after them and say, did, did I offend you in some way? Is there, is there a problem here? With the help of God, by the power of God, don't be that guy, don't be that woman. Be the person who comes alongside and tries to get to the bottom of a difference or a disagreement so that unity can be sustained and preserved. We've reached the end of Jesus' farewell discourse. But verse 24 teaches us that it is a temporary farewell that Jesus is giving his disciples. It is not a permanent goodbye. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. That is going to happen when Jesus Christ returns. We will be with him where he is forever. And that is a motivation for unity with real Christians in this life. If you inwardly think to yourself, that fellow Christian, 
just can't get into unity with that fellow Christian. Keep in mind, you will be with that fellow Christian in the company of Jesus Christ for all eternity. And it may motivate you to seek unity with that Christian. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus' farewell to his disciples was not a permanent goodbye, but a temporary farewell. We thank you for the sure hope that we will be with him where he is when he returns. We look forward to that eagerly. Father, we are stunned to see that you have given us unity and glory and knowledge and love, which in some measure are the same as what you and the Spirit and the Son experience in heaven. Help us to meditate on these things. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would take hold of them in our lives, that what we showcase to a watching world might be as attractive and compelling as it should be. And we pray that as we showcase the things you have given us, those who do not yet believe might be drawn to your son Jesus and put their trust in him. Amen.